went to college at Princeton and received his PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Texas at Austin. He is the Robert O. Lawton Distinguished Professor of Psychology at Florida State University. Dr. Joyner's work is on the psychology, neurobiology, and treatment of suicidal behavior and related conditions. He was awarded the Guggenheim Fellowship, was named a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and was given a 2020 James McNeil Cattell Award for lifetime contributions to the area of applied psychological research from the Association for Psychological Science. As a consultant to NASA's Human Research Program, he was the director of the DOD-funded Military Suicide Research Consortium, a 10-year, $70 million project. Dr. Joyner runs a clinical and consulting practice specializing in suicidal behavior, including legal consultation on suits involving death by suicide. He's written many books, including Mindlessness, The Corruption of Mindfulness in a Culture of Narcissism, published by the University of Oxford Press, The Interpersonal Theory of Suicide, Guidance for Working with Suicidal Clients with the American Psychological Association, and Why People Die by Suicide by the Harvard University Press. He's one smart guy, and we are really, really lucky to have him on Out of the Box with Jonathan Russo. Listeners, today we're joined by a very special guest, uh, Dr. Thomas Joyner, and he's asked me to address him as Thomas. So I will do that for the, you know, for the rest of the, the broadcast. He's an expert on suicide, and uh, we're not going to ever use the word commit suicide. Um, that's the improper term. We're going to use the word died by suicide. But Thomas is going to take us through the current situation about thinking about suicide, psychological, medical, uh, where we are in the, the nature of suicide, which is a growing problem in America. As we all know, uh, there are tremendous growth in in suicide. We will discuss the cultural ramifications of that as a nation. Could a nation, you know, die by suicide? I uh, actually read a term called civicide the other day uh, to imply that a nation couldn't, can voluntarily, because it's in such pain and agony, like end itself or try to end itself or think about ending itself. We'll get to that later in the podcast. But right now, I just really want to ask Thomas about the latest thinking that he's working on regarding a suicide. Please talk to us and tell us what's going on. Happy to do so, and uh, thank you for having me, Jonathan. Um, my own work on the on the topic has, uh, among among other things, focused on developing an, an answer, a potential answer to the key question of why the, why does this happen? Well, why in the world would anybody want to die by suicide? You know, much less actually be able to enact it. It's it really is an intriguing question and and it's a somber question, but it happens so frequently as you as you mentioned that we need to confront it. And my answer has boiled down to pretty simple logic, but that has some interesting nuances to it. The simple part of it is why do people do this? Because they want to, and because they can. Um, but that that really does beg questions. Why why would they want to? And my answer to that question is that they feel that they don't belong, there's no social connection, and they feel that they don't matter. They feel that they're, mm. that they're actually, not, not only they don't matter, but they're, that they're a burden to others. Mm. Their existence and their life detracts from others that they care about. Mm. That's why they want to, but, but a separate question, it turns out, is can they? Are they able to do it even if they desperately want to? And for a number of people, the answer to that question is no. 
they can't. This, even if they desperately want to, they can't because it involves staring death in the face. And we're just not equipped to do that. We're not wired for it. Very few people have the actual capability to follow through on suicide, but some do. And so the idea is that when those three things converge or collide, so to speak, namely, you feel like you're a burden, you feel like you don't belong, and you're able to do this, you've got the fear, you've got the fearlessness to be able to do it. When those three things combine, that's when we see these catastrophic outcomes. Thomas, where does the element of pain come into this? Um, the people that I know who have died by suicide were in agony. They were in so much pain. Sometimes it was physical, sometimes it was mental. And uh, if you've ever seen somebody in the throes of mental pain, and unfortunately, I think all of us have, I have, and, and that person ended up dying by suicide. Um, it, it was just unforgivable, endless, chronic, never-ending pain that couldn't be alleviated by medications, by electric shock therapy, by by every you know, every everybody tried to to stop the pain, and it never stopped. Where does that come in? I mean, the, the emphasis on psychological anguish and misery is is very proper because there have been people, many, many you know, scholars and eminent thinkers over the centuries who have repeatedly said as, as bad as physical agony and misery can be, if anything, the psychological version of it is even worse. Uh, Robert Burton said that in 1621, for example. <laughs> right. In his anatomy of melancholy and, and and so it's it's very proper to emphasize it and you're quite right that that, that is a precursor to to lethal suicidal acts and, and what my work has done is to say pain anguish uh one of my um heroes and pre and predecessors aaron beck focused on hopelessness my 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 response has been we need to get a little bit more specific about the nature of things like anguish and pain and hopelessness hopeless about what in pain about what and that's been one of the the, the virtues I, I think of my work is to say actually it's about this specific thing people are in pain and anguish and misery because they're alienated from everybody and that's deeply painful to very social creatures like us and they feel like they don't matter. They feel like they're not contributing. And that's also very painful to social creatures like us. So, so my work has been to has been one part of it has been to get more specific about exactly what it is that people are in pain about to the degree that they start thinking that they'd rather die than live. Thomas, what happens if that pain though is hardwired or, or those feelings of alienation or loneliness or that they don't matter? Like they're illogical. I mean, some of these people were loved by their families. They're loved by friends. They were accomplished people. Even we all know, you know, some of the celebrities that have died by suicide. Um, so, you know, if it's not logical that they're that they're alienated or that they don't matter, in fact, the opposite could be the case. They are beloved, and in fact, they are accomplished. Um, but they're hardwired to believe the opposite. What can anybody really do about that? Are there, are there medications out there that are effective? I don't know, but that's that that's the issue to me. You know, yeah, I would, well, I would put it a little bit differently than hardwired. 
I would say that the the mental health conditions that that drive the this, these these sorts of things, they're forces of nature. They're they're really they're really powerful forces of nature, and they can distort people's minds. Just as you said, distort somebody's mind. So where where the, in reality they're successful and, and beloved, but because their mind is distorted by something like major depressive disorder or, or the depressive phase of bipolar disorder they see it totally different they're not seeing it in in in, in real terms to them because of the, the the power of these mental disorders they're seeing it totally wrong they they just don't know that and to your question about is there anything to do about it definitely uh these days the the frontline treatment for these conditions involve a a combination of medication and behavior therapy or or cognitive behavior therapy that package is is not it's not perfect it's not 100% effective but it's very effective for most people right i i believe that i know a lot of people who have benefited from cognitive behavior therapy it's it, it has its real 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 uses um i just feel really sorry for those people that are so depressed and so um unhappy that they they think about killing themselves um it, it, it sometimes though actually it's almost a relief you know if you know some people who've just been miserable for decades and haven't had a good day and every day is painful and, and awful it, it sometimes it actually you know seems like a, a rational solution if nothing if nothing ever works do you ever feel that way I don't um good and I I don't I don't adhere to that view really I, I totally understand what you're saying but my my whole professional life, 30 plus years, has been so devoted to the victories Great. of preventing these Great. catastrophes that that I, I don't see any outcome that that's that that's towards suicide or death is anything other than a terrible and tragic loss. And the prevention of these things are, are very deeply rewarding, satisfying victories. Are you teaching people preventive techniques? Have they have you have you been able to uh, through your studies and writings and books educate a, a cadre of counselors that that now understand the most advanced techniques? I mean, I think there has been pretty good spread of the ideas in the book. In the books, I've written a few on suicide and and how to prevent it, and I lecture regularly around. I know the world and and but the, maybe the main thing that i've contributed is generations of, of of new clinical psychologists i'm a clinical psychologist a licensed one i maintain an active clinical practice myself though i'm mainly a researcher and same with all my phd students who go on to be professors at various mm -hmm. places around the country and and they're they're they give me such optimism and hope because they're they're better they're better than i was they're younger than i am and they're, hmm. they're just going to they're going to solve it or or their students will solve it. I, I'm confident. And or not, if not solve it, then, then make a huge difference better than what we're doing now. That's wonderful. They, news. They give me real hope. That is wonderful news. And, and and first, I never meant to imply that that this was a, good, a positive solution, but a, a one of like empathy for somebody in, in such pain. Let's go on to before we really segue into the meat of this. Let, let's talk about the current trends. I understand suicide uh, amongst young people is at, at an all-time high. There's all, all these social issues going on with um, shaming and uh, if, and um, uh, social media shaming. You, you read about uh, 
young people, 12, 13, 14, killing themselves all, all fairly frequently now, unfortunately. Not everyone makes the headlines, you know, about uh, they were shamed at school. Uh, there was social media rumors about them and they, they ended, ended up ending their life, et cetera. And of course, we had the COVID lockdowns and all the lack of sociability and all the fear and all the all the disruptions. I actually have some friends that were telling me about a private school that they their daughter teaches at, and they have like six and seven year olds, five, six and seven year olds who are like behavior problems, throwing chairs, uncontrollable uh, aggression uh, that, that never was seen before. Um, so talk to us a little bit about the cultural uh, phenomenon going on right now and as you see it in our society. Well, we in the U.S. have seen increases in the in the suicide death toll with, with two two exceptions every year since around 2002 and and the two exceptions are interesting because they're they're 2019 and 2020 or sorry 2019 and, and 2020 during covid which is interesting those the, the rates went down those two years that's that's pretty interesting to ponder but overall it's been a frustrating relentless increase in the daily toll and to me that's concerning and as you mentioned it, it it's a little bit um more so in youth though, though the youth rate has always and still is much much lower than the suicide rate in older people and then that gets lost in the in the messaging sometimes but there has been an increase a relative increase in, in youth suicide over the last several years and that's very concerning uh, in people of color there's been an increase over the last uh, few years, very concerning. And, and my view of it is, yes, that's very concerning and frustrating. And, and also, we're swimming upstream as American suicide preventionists for the very reasons that you pointed to. But also think of some other things like our culture and our relationship to violence. We're pretty comfortable as a country with violence. Our homicide rate towers over the, yeah. of, mo of most countries our yeah. opiate, our opiate um, accidental opiate you know death tower, towers over uh, those yeah. of other countries and you might ask well what does an accidental opiate overdose have to do with, with suicide or what does homicide have to do with suicide you might ask it's a good question but my answer is a culture and a society that's willing to tolerate that much death and violence might also unwittingly or not facilitate self violence and self-death and i think that's the case we're swimming upstream so i'm not surprised that we've seen year after year increases for the most part i am very concerned about it very saddened by it very very uh frustrated by it wow that's a really really interesting insight thank you i never would have put the the overall um acceptance of violence and mass death uh in in the same context okay I'm going to move on now to um, the topic that uh, I'd like to dis explore with you. And um, as we discussed in a prequel, you are free to disagree with me, point out the fallacy of my argument. I want the listeners to to hear that I don't know what I'm talking about or I'm off the wall. But I, I called, I, I wanted to talk to you because as my as listeners know, I'm very interested in politics and I have been obsessing about like many Americans, what's going on in our political, you know, political scheme. I, I don't think the conservatives are conservative. I think they're anarchists. I've talked all about anarchy and and, and in our political world and disjointedness and nihilism, et cetera. And it came to me that, you know, perhaps like the country was in agony. 
instead of an individual being in pain and agony, it seems that maybe the United States is in agony. Something like uh, 18% of people think we're on the right track. That means 84% of people think, quote, the country is on the wrong track. Two out of every five people think there's going to be a civil war in the next five years. I mean, when you listen to the uh, propaganda coming out of the uh, magma crowd, I mean, it's like despair, despair. It's horrible that it, nothing could be right. Um, the, the latest uh, compromise in the in the Senate is a complete sellout. Um, they don't like anything. They don't like immigration. They don't like uh, the fiscal policy. You know, they they don't like the education policy, the cultural wars. I mean, so it seems like so many people in our country right now are like so disgusted with like waking up in America. <laughs> it's like, do they want to end it? I mean, was January 6th, like, could you imagine if the January 6th guys succeeded? I mean, isn't that suicidal, what we would have gone through? Killed 280 years of democracy? A couple of thoughts. And and one is that I, you, you, you encouraged me to disagree. I, I disagree a little bit about the idea that the country itself is in trouble, is in trouble. We've been through ups and downs. Um but but the truth of the matter is, is, is to me is one thing one is what we've done terrible things in our history we have to be clear out about that nevertheless this is the most free most prosperous country on the face of the earth and you know, the history of the world and it still is and it will be wait a minute so, i know that wait hold on yeah. now, i'm going to interrupt you i normally don't interrupt yes doc thomas i agree with that i totally agree with that but that's not the rhetoric that I'm hearing from the magma crowd and and this and the Banyan crowd. And so so your optimism is my optimism, but that's not what I'm hearing on the other side. Right, but I, I don't under really get why you why you'd listen to them. It's nonsense. <laughs> because they're half the Republican Party. That's why. Because the Repub the half the Republican Party is, is, is believes the election wasn't was stolen. They're gonna in all likelihood, nominate Donald Trump again. I, I have called him the the, the arch um, villain of, of all time. They're going to put him back up. So I have to pay attention to that. But please go on. I'm interrupting you too much. Go ahead. Uh, just that I, I do think there's a reason for optimism. I don't think we're headed towards any kind of, you know, tragedy or, or, or national death or, or things like that. But I, but I do think collectives there are examples of collectives, groups, large groups in some cases that that have actually steered themselves towards annihilation, towards you know, sort of self-death or suicide. And the two that I'm most familiar with that I've kind of read the most about and, and feel the most expert about, one is Jonestown, where close to a thousand people, all pr pretty much all of them voluntarily ingested what they knew to be a lethal substance. Um, under the leadership of a, a deeply disturbed and troubled leader. His name was Jim Jones. This is in the 70s. And then more recently, the Heaven's Gate example, where fewer people, it was more like 38 in that case, uh, again, ingested a, a, a substance, all of them voluntarily, apparently, knowing that it would it would end their lives. And so those are two examples that we can talk about a little bit more of, of collectives that, that have decided to essentially engage in group suicide. Let's talk about the Jonestown thing. I've, I was quite conscious that I was, you know, in my 20s when that happened. Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, why would a group decide to do that? In that, in that case, <clears throat> unlike the Heaven's Gate case, where it's actually clearer, 
the Jonestown motive was not all that clear. It was a mishmash, partly because of how troubled Jones was. Their their you know kind of belief system was pretty pretty incoherent, at least to my understanding. My understanding of it is is it just had to do with a kind of social revolutionary justice motive of if if they're gonna you know if, if some you know amorphous they the U.S. government or, or what whatever it was if they're gonna you know victimize us and even come and kill us well we should take things into our own hand and do it ourselves that's more or less what it was um, it it wasn't very productive you know I, I think there was an idea of well you know this we'll go on to heaven and it'll be better right than, than this and that was certainly the motive in heaven's gate they thought they were going to a kind of heaven right well that's basic christian theology catholic theology starting at day one that heaven is the reward for a life of misery i mean that that's deeply in, in, ingrained in every christian in the western world um so that there's nothing new there i mean that's you know when when, when half a city died in the plague um, you know, the church went around saying, well, you know, it's not so bad. They're going to heaven. You know, it's like when a four-year-old died from, you know, cholera you know, throughout all of human history, you know, they, they, they were sorry about it, but they rationalized it by saying, you know, he's going to God. You just have to go to a graveyard and see all the, you know, he's in the hands of Jesus now, that kind of stuff. So, so you know, that's pretty normal. What about Waco? You didn't mention the, that, that. And that comes into the news. You know, that was a form of suicide. I mean, in, in a sense, they knew they were going to die. I mean, they were so outnumbered. They, they, they were surrounded. They, they didn't have any reinforcements. They had no way of getting more ammunition. They were up against the, you know, basically, you know, the armed forces of the, of, of the FBI or what have you. Um, and they, con they continued to fight to the last and allowed themselves all to be killed. Um, and it's interesting that our Donald Trump went to Waco, you know, on the anniversary of that and like, you know, gave a speech about that. And like everybody was like, what? You know, you're going to Waco, Texas to give a, you know, your inauguration speech or I mean, an announcement speech or something. I thought that was very symbolic that, you know, we should surround, we should like all die for this cause or something. I mean, it's really pretty crazy shit, right? A lot of these, 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 we've mentioned three incidents so far, Jonestown, Heaven's Gate, and now Waco. And for each of them, actually, I go back and forth about whether these were, you know, mainly suicidal, or were they also murder suicides? Really, Jones right. perpetrating a murder suicide against hundreds of his followers, Marshall Applewhite and in, in, in Heaven's Gate doing the same thing, and then the leader in the Waco um, incident. And, and the Waco incident that that one hits me as as the clear, more clear example of murder suicide i don't think those folks i don't know as much about the waco incident as i do mm -hmm. the other two but um my my view of it is that those folks weren't really ready or, or willing to die but but the uh the lead, what was his name koresh yeah exactly uh, i think he, that's he correct killed mm -hmm. him. he killed right. him and he killed himself in a murder suicide incident right. the way that i understand that one Right. I think that makes, you know, that, that makes some sense. So of course, I, we, we're both at the same place where we don't see any reason for this total despair because we're both historians. We both know that we've been in really bad place in this country many, many times before. And, you know, we've climbed out of it you know, only to go back into it. You know, there's no question that uh, I take the long view on that. But I do see despair at a level that I've never seen before in the national mood. Um, there's an anger. There's a there's a uh, denial of reality. There's a uh, sense of um, uh, being put upon. 
uh, and conspiracy theories um, abound. This isn't the kind of behavior of normal people. These, this is the kind of deviant behavior that people who might die by suicide eventually or commit violent acts, and we are seeing that. That's where I'm going on this. Do you see that parallel? I mean, I, I, I wonder, you know, I, I wonder if we were around in the 1770s if, if, or the 1860s, if this, if this wouldn't feel familiar. I think I'm sure it would. Through, I think we've been through it and um, we'll get through this again. And uh, I'm sure because it will. of the greatness of the ideas that the country was founded on. Now, I don't want to overlook the terror. We've done terrible things and we should be clear eyed about that. But oh, yeah. this, at the same time, the freedom and the prosperity are unrivaled. Okay. I'm with you. I, I, we didn't rehearse this, but I'm with you 100%. I mean, I, I'm, I'm speaking from Long Island right now and 25 miles from here. Uh, in 1938, the Ku Klux Klan or something marched down the main street of Yapank. I mean, you know, it's like Long Island, the Ku Klux Klan. Really? You know, I mean, yeah, they really did. You know? So, I mean, you know, I, I, that, that, I think we both know historically that we've been on, on some rocky road. Let me bring up something that's uh, somewhat analogous, or uh, to me, it's interesting. Um, I know that you're somewhat familiar with the work of Leni Riefenstahl, and for those German speakers, I apologize, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but she was the propagandist for the Third Reich, and she made a series of movies, which we've all seen, of hundreds of thousands of people at Nuremberg and elsewhere cheering you know, um, the, the, the new Fuhrer of the, of the Third Reich. Uh, happy faces, children, babies, you know, glowing uh, families, rosy-cheeked children. The crowds were, you know, beyond belief. They were enthusiastic. They were almost hysterical, like a Beatles concert, you know, at at, at the at the Führer. And the whole country was behind him and excited about the prospect of of his leadership. And then about eight years later, seven years later. Um, uh, it was in ruins. The, the country was be bombed out beyond belief. There was there was no Germany left. Uh, they called the zero hour because it was pure anarchy. No running water, no law and order. I mean, if anybody's seen pictures of Cologne or Dresden or Hamburg after the war, they'll know what I'm talking about. Um, so can, a nation can, I mean, I, I, in a sense, that's a form of suicide, isn't it? I mean, where it collectively fouls somebody or a path that's so erroneous that leads to utter destruction. It, it basically destroyed the entire German nation. Talk well, to me about that. One is that. Is that, you know, what they were doing was was grotesque, but what they thought they were doing was making things better. Uh, they weren't. It was grotesque, but they thought they were taking things to a different place, a better place, like Heaven's Gate, and, and to a degree like Jonestown. So in that sense, there are parallels where what they're going for is to, to reach a higher plane or what they think of as a higher plane. But aren't we here now with that? We have Marjorie Taylor Greene and about 40 other Republicans telling us that the January 6th insurrectionists are political prisoners. Okay, they're telling us that these people are political prisoners, that they were it was a walk in the park. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, Tucker Thompson did his little Fox News piece, which was viewed by you know, three or four million people or more, you know, trying to convince us that this was like a peaceful demonstration and that it was all set up by the FBI or something like that. So, whoa, here. I mean, wait a minute. I mean, when you when you go and say, um, you know, that uh, that that people aren't um, the, 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 
engaged in negative behavior, they they are. They are engaged in their negative behavior, very violent, vicious negative behavior, the way I see it. I, I see it that way too. Um, but I, I, I don't see those people as anything other than well they're 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 you know they're they they I, I didn't you know I'm not a judge or a policeman or anything like that. From what I've seen, they were criminals. Um but I don't know. Um but if you're glorifying them as innate, if, if a political party is glorifying those criminals, and that's what they were to me too, insurrection is criminals. They've been convicted now of, you know, insurrectionism and uh, and all the other crimes that they've been you know, sentenced and convicted one by one. Deep state strikes back. I've written about that. But to glorify them, isn't that really, um, you know, creating the, the the possibility of a national suicide when you're when you're glorifying this sort of behavior and violence I mean are, where does that lead to as, 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 as a nation where does democracy go when when you have politicians telling us that that's normative behavior I, I agree that it's not normative and I don't condone it at all I just believe so strongly and fervently in um okay the American ideal that that we're going to stare it down. Uh, whatever it is, even if it's nonsense like this, ultimately we'll stare it down. Again, we've done terrible things. I'm not trying to gloss over all. No, that, I know. But I know. The, the beauty and the and the accomplishment and the freedom and the prosperity. I keep returning to that because it's true. It's our past and it's our future. Okay, I completely go along with that. Then now, so now, do we have an isolated group, the magma group? It's not so isolated. There are a lot of them. I mean, they're not Jonestown numbers. I mean, they're you know. 25% of the 35% of the electorate, 45, 50% of the Republican Party, depending on which poll you read. Okay, so big, broad picture, you're optimistic, I'm optimistic, we think America is a great place or a good place, we think we can get out of this, we both agree on that. What do we do about the, the segment that doesn't feel that way, that now is going down a violent, ugly path of, of denial of reality, uh, race baiting, immigrant baiting, violence, uh, you know, Second Amendment rights. I mean, we, we're seeing this all over all over now, anti-Semitic attacks uh, that never existed in this country before. So if if it's not the big picture, it's a smaller picture, but it's a real picture. So how do we deal with that? How, how would a doctor, uh, a, 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 a death by suicide preventionist, you know, reach out to those people to, to to say, hey, it's not bad or it's not that bad or, you know, work within the system or just, you know, wake up and vote, you know, normally. Don't act like this is coming to an end tomorrow. Please tell me. I don't know that there's no that there's any persuading of that kind that's possible. My 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 view is everyone has First Amendment rights. And so let's fight it out in the arena of ideas. And and I'm confident that those ideas will lose because they're nonsense and they're losers. <laughs> well, you're, you're you're remarkably optimistic about this. And you know, I, I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you are. Um really, really, really am. Okay. Um where do we go from here? What what's the what's the let's go back since we've covered the political aspect. Thank you so much for that. Let's just wrap up and go back to um, the work you're doing right now um, for anybody interested in, you know, preventing uh, somebody from uh, death by suicide. What, what what can people do to make sure that that doesn't occur? I would I would offer some pretty down to earth and common sense ideas. I mean, one is that most people, not everyone, but most people have contact either with a primary care physician, like a family doctor, 
and or a clergy person, a clergy type person. And those two professions, they see a lot of human strife and misery and, and, th and thriving and flourishing, all of it. And therefore, they become pretty wise about, well, let's, let's, let's get you over here to see this yeah. mental health professional. So I would reach out to like a family doctor or a clergy person. I believe that. Yeah. Um, of course, a mental health professional is a good idea, but a lot of people don't you know, know exactly how to do that. And access is not great in some areas of our country, whereas access to primary care and to clergy is a little bit more available. Of course, we have a 988 number in the United States, kind of, you know, akin to 911. Yeah. It's an emergency you call 911. If it's a suicidal crisis, you call 988. It's the same kind of federal, you know, federally mandated, federally supported um, system as is 911. But this is 988, and it's a great resource, a real, a real step forward in suicide prevention. And then the last thing I'll say about the about just basic tips is, you know, mental health problems exist clearly. We're getting much, much better about being open about this. And, and now that we're being more open about it, well, let's take the next step and encourage people to get help when they need it. Um, mental health treatment, at least of a quality kind, really, really works. And it, it takes the, the likelihood of a suicide or even an, a, a non-lethal attempt from you know, you know, pretty likely to, to much less likely just because it takes the wind out of the sails of the, of the misery and the anguish that you and I were talking about a little while ago. Right. Okay. Well, let's also hope then on a national level um, that we have some centrists, some 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 decent folks that want to come forward and uh, heal us um, and make it a little bit better for the uh, for the national conversation, so we don't have a a nation on a suicidal path, uh, one that's uh, fought with you know, violence and, and a dark dark future. Um, I hope we can all do that. It'd be really interesting. Um, as as I mentioned in the credits, uh, opening credits, your books are, are are really extraordinary, really, really profound. And we hope that uh, the listeners will uh, access themselves to your to your books and uh, your writings. And um, lastly, I think I'd like to have you back to have that conversation about mindfulness and the book you wrote uh, about mindfulness and the culture of narcissism. That topic is also fascinating. You're quite the scholar and quite quite articulate. And I really enjoyed talking to you, Thomas. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it too, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. Listeners, thanks again for tuning in to Out of the Box with Jonathan Russo. Your input is valuable to us, and we'd really like to hear from you. Please send us an email anytime with feedback at ootbwithjrusso at gmail.com and follow us on our Twitter page, ootbwithjrusso. Listeners, Believe it or not, we're on Instagram. Please follow us at OOTB with Jay Russo on Instagram. This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated. All rights reserved.